good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland and Public Square. I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream. It's my pleasure to introduce today's forum, the final forum for this year's For the Love of Cleveland series. For what seems like most of the summer, everybody's been talking about the Cuyahoga River. We know why. 50 years ago, it burned, and the fire and the national attention that followed pretty much became the catalyst for the modern environmental movement that included both the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Water Act. A half century later now, the Cuyahoga River, healthy and vibrant and vital. However, Cleveland and this nation are facing new challenges brought on by climate change. This summer, we've been discussing climate change from the ground up through the lens of the four natural elements, water, air, earth, and fire. And this week is fire, or as Stephanie put it more specifically, energy. After President Trump indicated he would withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Accord, a group of nearly 200 mayors, including Mayor Frank G. Jackson, joined the mayor's national climate action agenda and committed themselves to the climate goals outlined in that agreement. 427 mayors representing 20% of the U.S. population are now members. That includes mayors from Cincinnati, Toledo, Columbus, and Lakewood. One of those goals is to power Cleveland with 100% renewable electricity by the year 2050, meeting this goal critical to reducing Cleveland's greenhouse gas emissions by some 80% by 2050, Greenhouse gas emissions largely result from burning fossil fuels and once released get trapped in the Earth's atmosphere and contribute to the further warming of our planet. Urban centers like Cleveland produce about 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions in North America. Questions we want to ask are how's Cleveland progressing so far, what initiatives are underway, and are they proving successful, and how can we ensure these efforts don't result in an increased energy burden on the poor while also creating good jobs for the people that need them most. There's plenty to talk about this hour. We're going to chat a bit here, and then we'll open it up for your questions. Now, joining me on stage, you're wondering who these good people are. David Beach is the former director of the Green City Blue Lake Institute at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. John Mitterholzer, the Senior Program Officer for the Environment at the George Gund Foundation. Heather Taylor Meisel is Executive Director for the, Inv the Ohio Environmental Council. And seated next to me, and on the next page, although I already know her, is Jocelyn Trapp, Conserv Conservation Program Manager for the Ready for 100 campaign at the Sierra Club. We're going to get started, but first, we've got a little bit of irony to go through. Because just in the last half hour, the Ohio House voted in favor of the sweeping energy bill you've heard of, HB6, bails out the two nuclear power plants through $150 million in ratepayer subsidies. For those listening on the radio, there are people out here thumbing down. Comprehensive bill also sets new coal subsidies, allots credits for solar, weakens renewable energy requirements, and eliminates energy efficiency programs. Uh, it could save some jobs, yes, but the bill could hurt in many other ways as we were talking fossil fuels. Heather, you were dismayed when the vote came in. Talk about that for us. I'll just take it all the way there. Well, first, let me just say uh, thank you for having us. Thanks to everybody who shows, showed up today. Um, I think it's really important to remember that no matter what bill passes, no matter what is going on, showing up is often half the battle. And so uh, really sitting here with each other to try to figure out some of these big problems is going to be really important for our future, especially after today. I also want to recognize the people on the ground here in Cleveland. I, I typically spend most of my time in Columbus. But you guys have tremendous leadership in this city. And I just want to thank you for that leadership and all the support, um, especially in uh, the past five months. 
Uh, so this is a, is a pretty long story that uh, would be a perfect case for uh, why money in politics is really, really bad. So basically what's happening is that we have a company that has made really poor business decisions and invested in very old nuclear power plants um, and, and done it in a way that is not trying to keep pace with the market um, and done it in a way that's not even trying to keep pace with the technology. In addition, this bill would uh, bail out two coal plants, one in Ohio, and guess what, folks? You're bailing out a coal plant in Indiana. Um, not only are we bailing out a coal plant in Indiana, but that pollution coming off of that coal plant goes right into the city of Cincinnati. And so we'll also be further poisoning our children in southwest Ohio. And we do all of this on the backs of getting rid, essentially, of our clean energy standards, both renewable energy standards and on energy efficiency. Um, and that's super problematic for a number of reasons. Not only is this about carbon pollution and really making sure that we improve our air quality, but this is about jobs. We got 112,000 jobs uh, in the state of Ohio when it comes to clean energy. And we're basically shutting the door on these two uh, job sectors, which happen to be the two fastest growing job sectors in the world. So while you hear other governors and other states saying 100% clean energy by 2050, or whatever those big pronouncements are, Ohio becomes uh, probably today after the governor signs it, the very first state in the country that will actually be, actually be taking a step backwards. And that is a serious issue. And one of the reasons I'm super happy today to be in Cleveland, a place that is taking seriously our commitment to the future. And so I'm excited to work with all of you all because I am hopping mad, as you can probably tell. And uh, I'm not ready to give up because I got two kids and I'm not ready to give up on them. And I'm excited to join with all of you all to do that. Testing, there we go. Heather is shy, as you can tell. <laughs> John, since, since she went to money, let's go there. Uh, two years ago, you said there's a lot of money coming from philanthropic organizations focused on keeping the USA on track to meet commitments under the Paris Climate Accord. A lot has changed in two years. Um, we're, we're not on track anymore. <laughs> no, we're not. That's fair to say, especially in this state, given what just happened. Um, I made that statement two years ago, and there's actually more money going towards climate work in the United States. I mean, Paris, that was an amazing agreement. Only one country, Syria, did not sign that agreement in the entire world. So we joined the world stage as a country, and we came together, and we decided that we needed to tackle this problem. And since the Trump administration has decided to exit it, it's important to recognize they haven't formally exited yet. So we're still dictated by that agreement, and we're still all working very hard. There's a lot more money working towards mitigating climate and really trying to keep us on track. And a lot of that money, and this is the George Gunn Foundation is part of that, is at the state level. The recognition that we have a lot of work to do. There are many things we need to do at the federal level, but we can also do a lot of work at the state level to mitigate climate. Mm -hmm. Equally, we can do a lot of work here in Cleveland. And as Heather mentioned, we have leadership in our mayor who's made these commitments and is working really hard. So. While we have frustrating days like today at the state, we have to remember that there are many avenues we need to pursue in order to tackle climate change, and that can happen all over. And I am happy to say that philanthropy is increasing its commitment to doing that. Uh, and the George Gunn Foundation, uh, there is an effort out there called We Are Still In, 
where companies and institutions can say that they still are going to work towards the Paris Agreement regardless of what the federal government has done. I'm really proud that the George Gunn Foundation has signed that mm -hmm. commitment and continues to fund work to make sure that we stay on the path towards keeping the planet under two degrees Celsius, which is what we must do if we're going to keep the planet uh, habitable in the way it is today. Yeah. David, Cleveland continues investigating alternative, alternative energy sources, solar and wind, despite what's going on in the state. What do you think is the most promising out there for us right now? Well, I, I think we've got to do a lot of things. Um, and I just want to echo what Heather and John said, that the city can't do everything uh, alone. It needs a supportive state and federal policy uh, landscape um, in order for us to, to do what we need to do locally. But we can do a lot. Um, the city has reduced its uh, greenhouse gas emissions by about 8% between 2010 and 2017. Um, part of that is uh, because uh, in our electricity generation, there's been a big switch uh, to natural gas from coal. So that's not necessarily things that we've done here in the city, uh, but our grid is changing in a positive way. Now, the next uh, uh, step would be to get rid of that natural gas. That's not the best thing either. It's a, a small benefit over coal, uh, but it only becomes because we're fracking for cheap natural gas. There's lots of problems with, with that. Um, so we need more renewables locally. Um, there has been some progress locally to do that. Uh, we have some large solar fields, megawatt-sized facilities that have been developed in the last few years. Um, there's the hope that we'll have some wind turbines out on Lake Erie in the next uh, couple of years. That project continues uh, to move forward. Um, and we've made progress in our buildings. Um, the uh, 2030 district here in Cleveland has organized downtown buildings and university circle buildings to reduce, uh, to in improve their efficiency. Um, and those buildings are using a lot less energy um, than they used to. Um, so on all kinds of ways, we're making progress. Mm -hmm. He mentioned some of the numbers. Let me give you some numbers, uh, which I actually got from Heather's site, the Ohio Environmental Council. 738 megawatts of installed wind capacity in Ohio. Might sound like a lot, according to the American Wind Energy Association, but it's only a third of what they have in Indiana and Michigan, less than 20% of what they're doing right now in Illinois, so we are lagging. Um, we have maybe 59% of our Powers generated from electricity from coal, 24% from natural gas, 13% from nuclear, only 2% from renewable sources. And Heather, that's got to bug you that we haven't done any better and now somebody threw the car in reverse. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I go back to this um, pay-to-play mentality that's happening in our state legislature. We've really, really got to pay attention to this. Um, this is not just a story on energy. This is a story on democracy. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, actually flew a jet to Donald Trump's inauguration it that was owned by First Energy. Uh, last night, the governor sent a plane to Chicago to bring some of the lawmakers who were there who were going to vote for this bailout home. Actually, they canceled that flight last night. They, they drove from Chicago to Columbus. Nice. Well, I, I appreciate that they carpooled. I'm hoping that they at least carpooled. But... Uh, but I think the point is, is nonetheless, like this is, we have some serious issues. On July 31st, we're going to see all the donations that First Energy made to uh, lawmakers in the past few months on this bill. Like there are a lot of things going on that make no sense, except if you look at how the money is being handed out. And we got to get serious about that. Uh, there is a big divide between where lawmakers are and where the public is in the state of Ohio. We know that at least 63% of people 
uh, no matter what your political affiliation is, in the state of Ohio believe that we need to go robustly into the future with clean energy. And yet we get this kind of bill whenever you have the majority of Republicans, the majority of Democrats, the majority of independents, all seeing this future and all seeing what's, also seeing what's happening right now. Um, we all saw all of the treacherous rains that happened this, uh, this spring. And I'll tell you a story. I was speaking uh, to a whole bunch of farmers a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about toxic algae, which uh, I'm sure you're not, not surprised is another topic that, that we spend a lot of time on as well. And, um, and we were talking about ways we could work together. This was a very productive discussion and really forward-looking. Forward and I got to the end of my remarks. And, one of the, and, and I hadn't mentioned climate change or anything in these remarks at all. And one of the farmers raised their hand and they said, I haven't been able to plant most of my crop this year. What are you going to do about climate change? And we ended up having this like really robust discussion about how it's time for all of us to get into the deep end of the pool on this issue. You know, people are seeing this happening around them right now. This is not a future discussion, although this is important for our future. This is a right now kind of thing. And I, I think that that's why we've got to take this so seriously and why it's so important that folks like you all are, are here um, and helping us figure out what our next steps are. Thanks, Heather. I want to bring Jocelyn into the conversation. When I introduced her, I called her the program manager for the Ready for 100 campaign of the Sierra Club. So before I ask her about our frustrations with Columbus, tell us about the Ready for 100. Sure. Ready for 100 is basically saying that, you know, we know that we're not going to get the support that we need on a national level. Let's make it local. So what we've done is we've, we're um, getting commitments and we're working nationally to, to get local communities, mayors, city councils, to pass resolutions to commit to 100% clean energy. Um, at this point, we have 120 cities, seven states that have made that commitment. And then um, our goal is to make sure that, that, um, that reaching that goal to 100% is an equitable and just transition, making sure that we're involving and engaging residents of our communities in the decision making and in, in getting those clean energy jobs. And, you know, and that we're working together. Um, and so that's, that's ready for 100. How then do you combat what politicians are doing, in many cases for the good of the few rather than for the good of these good folks? Well, you know, the bottom line is that we have to realize that we have power as individuals and collectively as a community. And, you know, unfortunately, when, you know, as Heather was saying, when you look at donations and contributions of the big power to our elected officials, you know, we need to, first of all, we need to certainly hold our elected officials accountable. We need to know who voted um, for us not to have clean air and clean water. We need to know who doesn't care about our health um, and, our and the health of our community. And we need to hold those uh, elected officials accountable. Um, but we also need to recognize that we can do work and we can be powerful and we can get out there and reach into our community and help empower others because there's so much that we can do um, in order to achieve that goal of 100%. You would like a groundswell of support, I know, but it's tough for people to relate these pie-in-the-sky ideas when they don't have transportation, they don't have food. How do you get everybody as energized as the people who are listening and sitting here today? Yeah, well, well, 
you know, we're talking about affordable energy. When you look at your high electric bills or you look at the cold winters that we have, you know, so we're talking about energy efficiency. You know, we're talking about the high rates of asthma in our community. We're talking about the lead poisoning. The fact that Cleveland, the children of Cleveland, have a level of lead poisoning higher than that of Flint, Michigan because of our old housing stock and the paint chips. You know, those are issues that are environmental. Those are issues related to um, clean energy and clean health and that, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, those are the things that we have to make people understand. Let's relate that to what's really happening right now in our communities. John, we talked about jobs earlier, and we don't know what would happen because of what the governor may sign this afternoon. We talk about 100,000 jobs in Ohio tied to green energy um, compared to, what, seven or 8,000 in coal. Does that mean it's moving to the mainstream as an industry, provided we keep them all? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Policy is critical to that, right? We have to keep the policies in place, and we do this all throughout economic development. We create policies in many arenas and sectors of the economy that grow that economy. But, you know, Rick, just to bring it home, 13,000 of those jobs are here in Cuyahoga County. I mean, those are real jobs people go to every day in the clean energy industry, and a big portion of that is energy efficiency. That's not the most sexiest topic. We love to talk about wind and solar, but the reality is just stopping us from using more electricity helps greenhouse gas emissions and creates a lot of jobs. Think HVAC jobs, think insulation. Those are real jobs people have every day here in Cuyahoga County, and there's more than 13,000 people currently employed. Mm -hmm. Heather, uh, customers can be producers of electricity as well. We can install systems that allow us to pump money or pump energy back. Is that something you'd like to see more knowledge about and more activity involved with? I think that that's exactly... The reality is, is we're going to have to do all the things, right? There's, I wish there was a magic bullet when it came to climate change, but just like almost any complex topic, uh, it is, uh, it's really going to be difficult. And putting, we're going to have to put solar on our houses. We're going to have to invest in technology for whatever is the next clean energy thing. We're going to have to reduce our pollution. We're going to have to become more efficient, like John was saying, and I totally agree with him. If you want jobs in a place, invest in, in energy efficiency. But all of these things are really going to be important. The biggest thing we can do, though, it's kind of like that old saying, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. That's the biggest thing we got to do right now. We have to stop digging. And that means that we're going to have to invest in those clean energy uh, businesses, in those folks who are, you know, a fun thing that came out in all of this uh, universities in Ohio are investing in like gangbusters in the clean energy economy. They get it. They see the trends. They know where the future is going. They want their students to have jobs. Unfortunately, those students are going to have to move elsewhere if this kind of bill stands. And so that's exactly why we're going to have to fight it. And that's why everything is on the table today. Um, and that we're, that's why we all have to work together to make sure that we try to, to send a message to the State House that folks like you all, folks like me, we're not going to stand for it. But I will say something to build on what Jocelyn's doing and what she said. Um, you can't just be angry every day. Yeah, you know, like I've done this for 20 years. If I was angry every time a politician made a bad decision, I would probably not be able to survive. You have to look for reasons to have hope. And cities like Cleveland, cities like Columbus, cities like Cincinnati, where people actually live, are doing really amazing things. Our reality in the Statehouse was always going to be defense. We were always going to have to fight bad ideas. 
but where we're going to actually cut carbon, where we're actually going to invest in innovation in people is gonna be in places like this. And so we can be mad, we have to be spurred to action because of bad decisions, but we also have to celebrate because there are really exciting things going on in Ohio. Before you took over the OEC, you were in the private sector. What do companies see out here in Ohio that apparently the legislature doesn't? Um, well, so I've been, a, I've been a little bit of everywhere. I've been on, on Capitol Hill, and I've been in the nonprofit sector, and, and I've worked with uh, different companies on this stuff. And I got to tell so people have a lot of reasons for doing the right thing, right? On energy, a lot of times it's about their bottom line. Uh, there is one uh, uh, Fortune 500 CEO in Ohio whose uh, company has reduced their greenhouse gas emissions by like 80%. And they were going through the numbers with me and I'm like, I want to talk about this. This is a really good story. You guys are doing the right thing. Everybody thinks you guys are villains, but like this is really good news. And he said, no, Heather, you can't talk about it. And I'm like, why in the world not? And he said, don't get it twisted. If it's not good for my bottom line, I won't do it anymore. He's reduced his carbon pollution, though, by 80%, which is very significant because it's good for his bottom line. So there's the bottom line issue, and then there's the branding issue. And that's a real issue, too. People want to invest in companies to buy their stuff from companies that are good neighbors. And I think both of those things are reasons that Fortune 500 companies especially are investing in this. Okay. Let's talk about Cleveland and the efforts here. Um, one of the national leaders in making change is the city of Atlanta, working to run entirely on renewable power by 2035. That includes Hartsville-Jackson Airport, all the lights, the appliances, and the air conditioners in the city. What did they do, Jocelyn, to get 15 years ahead of Cleveland, and how do we catch up? Yeah, well, yeah, Atlanta is just um, very progressive, and we're really excited about that. They made a total commitment to um, 100%. Um, and, and Cleveland can do it. Um, you know, we, you know, thank goodness that in our climate action plan, we did make the commitment to 100% electricity um, by the year 2050. I believe we can do it before 2050, but I believe also Cleveland has to do a better job of, first of all, you know, really believing in what they made a commitment to. You know, we're still not really hearing Mayor Jackson come out there and say, yay, I'm all for this. You know, come on, Mayor Jackson. We need you to, to step up and take the lead on this. You know, we need our council people to step up and take the lead on this. We need to make sure that residents are engaged and participating fully in the process. My understanding from the Office of Sustainability is that we actually have um, secured the consultant who helped Atlanta they're not going to be helping Cleveland. So, so I'm, we're excited about that. We just want now to be able to find out what's the plan of action and how are you engaging the community in that plan of action. We want to be a part of this. Is part of our problem? Is part of our problem that jump around? We talk about Cleveland and lead. Then we talk about oh, Flint had a water problem. Let's look at our water. And then we talk about uh, let's put windmills in the lake. Do we need to focus on one thing at one time, or can we do everything? No, I, we definitely, we have a lot of issues in Cleveland, you know. I mean, Cleveland has a lot of issues, and so we're going to have to really look at those issues, and then we're going to have to figure out how can we all work together to deal with those issues. Lead is an issue. Asthma is an issue. The fact that we have such a high poverty rate in Cleveland is an issue, you know, and, and these are all things that are going to have to be dealt with in order for us to really reach 100%, that 100% goal, and make sure it's an equitable and just transition. Mm -hmm. So no, we have to work together to bring all these issues together and then figure out how can we do this as a team. 
we, we talk about the air situation. John, is air pollution just one of the prices we have to pay for living in a big city? No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be at all. We can do a lot of things on air quality, and we can, you know, you think about transportation sector, you think about how fast the electrification of that sector is happening. That will reduce air pollution. Where we get our energy sources reduces air pollution. But, you know, one of the unknown facts about Cleveland is that transportation creates the largest amount of our air pollution. It is an industry. It is a myth to believe that it's industry. And we have more individual car trips than most cities in the country. Things like public transit do that. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to address the air quality issues. Rick, if I could, just really quick on the Atlanta piece, thank you for pointing that out. I, one of the grants that I had the pleasure of being a part of as a program officer just last week, the trustees of the foundation approved, was to help the city follow Atlanta's path and to really figure out a roadmap to 100% equitable clean energy. I mean, that is an absolute key piece. How do we make sure the lowest income residents don't bear the energy price? But we saw what Atlanta was doing. The city wanted to try to emulate that, and I'm really excited that the, the Gun Foundation could help them do that. I'm going to pretend like I knew that. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, David, all this chatter about a Green New Deal, realistic or hyperbole? Where do we go with this idea locally? Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up. The Green New Deal is one of the really positive things that we can all get behind. Uh, it's a national policy recommendation. A lot of the details have to be worked out. Um, but it recognizes a couple of things. One, it recognizes that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's incredibly urgent. Um, we only have another decade or so to get this, this thing under control. We need a national mobilization, something at the scale of the Apollo program that put men on the moon, something at the scale of the responses of the first New Deal that happened back in the 1930s during the Depression. Climate change is that serious. We need a national mobilization. Um, so that's, uh, it's, there's a recommendation in Congress to do that. We need to get our local Congress people engaged. So far, no congressperson in Ohio has endorsed the Green New Deal. So that's something that we can all do, um, is encourage our local representatives to, uh, get, to get on board with that. Um, it's an incredibly important uh, idea. It's something at the scale of the problem that we haven't seen before. If the elected officials aren't leading us in Ohio, people would look around and go, who's my leader? Well, it could be the Sierra Club. Or who, who should be the leaders here in pushing us toward this green new space? You're looking at me, Rick, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really think that um, we've got um, a lot of environmental groups, advocates, activists on the ground, um, but I think that it really does have to be the residents working with the leadership. I really think that we've got to do a better job of educating not just our residents, but clearly our, our leadership. Uh, they obviously don't understand what's at stake here. Um, and so um, I just feel like it's not going to be a, we're not going to have another Martin Luther King. It's going to have to be us working together to, to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Before we go to the uh, questions from the audience, I'd like to hear from each of you. We'll just come down the line. What's your number one frustration right now? You want to start with me? Yeah. Uh, we're not listening to the people. I mean, I think we have to, you know, we have to do our job. We have to vote and we have to demand these changes. And as Heather said, the, the polling is clear. Uh, our elected officials at the state level are nowhere near where Ohio residents want to be. And that's my frustration. We have got to solve that issue because the majority of Ohioans want to do something about climate change. They want to do something about energy supply. And our legislature, our elected officials are blocking those changes. Thanks, John. Heather? 
There's got a lot more of than one I, frustration, I have many you? feelings right now. I'll just say, obviously, I know you guys, I was hiding them well, right? But uh, I would say that probably my biggest frustration right now is money and politics. David? Um, I, I would agree it, with, with that um, in the sense that, um, as John said, all the polls show that people care a lot about climate change. Um, they recognize it's a serious problem. They're worried about the, the, the future. And the money in politics does not translate those desires into political um, action. We're stymied in, in that sense. And we're also stymied with the fact that the money that the, uh, the fossil fuel industry is creating a false debate in this, in this country about climate change and does not allow us to recognize the seriousness of it. We are, have not come to grips as a country about how serious climate change is, the magnitude uh, of this problem. And in part, it's because of the money of special interests um, that's shaping this debate. Jocelyn. Yeah, I think we need to do a much better job. I think my frustration is that we're not listening to our community. We need to do a better job of listening to our community hearing our community and learning from our community and making sure that we're engaging our community in this work. Thank you. Today we are enjoying the final forum in this year's For the Love of Cleveland series. Joining me on stage, David Beach, former director of the Green City Blue Lake Institute at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Heather Taylor Meisel, the executive director for the Ohio Environmental Council. Jocelyn Travis, the conservation program manager for the Ready for 100 campaign at the Sierra Club. And John Mitterholzer, the senior program officer for the environment at the George Gund Foundation. We are about to begin the audience question and answer segment. We welcome questions from everyone, even if you're not presently joining us here in the square. If you're watching us via Facebook Live, pose a question in the comments. Similarly, if you'd like to tweet a question, tweet it at the City Club using the hashtag, hashtag LoveCLE. In both cases, our staff will try and work it into the program. We do want to remind you your questions should be brief and to the point. Holding the microphone today is City Club intern Sophia Brewer-Thompson. She is right up here. May we have the first question, please? Very briefly, you may want to comment a little more on this, Heather, but I'm up in Lake County quite a bit. A friend of mine lives there, and they created a climate of fear. What would happen if that nuclear power plant would close down and how it would affect the school and jobs up there? Would you like to comment on that campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we're trained as political operatives uh, to, to try to scare people to death. Um, and so I'm not surprised by that. I will tell you the facts speak for themselves. So what's interesting is First Energy is actually in, at First Energy and First Energy Solutions, they're actually in bankruptcy court right now. So this is a company that spent $13 million while they're in bankruptcy uh, telling everybody that uh, they should call their members of the state house to vote for a so-called clean air bill. Uh, which was hilarious, right? And then they, then they were able to negotiate a deal, a deal with the leaders of our Senate and our House that not only does not, it doesn't guarantee any of those jobs, it doesn't actually even require that it bails out the plants, right? There's nothing in there that says that First Energy must use this money to bail out those nuclear power plants. There's nothing in there. And so once again, you know, Ohio has a history of boom and bust, right? We invest in these different kinds of energy sources. 
those energy sources become no long, longer economically um, advantageous, we pull out of those communities. Right now, we're seeing this happen, right? Those communities have this opportunity to um, get ready for a transition. And rather than us going in and working with the community to actually help them transition to a cleaner energy future, we're, uh, we're standing back and bailing out uh, a company that has made bad decisions um, and, and keeps and continually keeps making bad decisions. And so it just doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense how this is, has really gone down. Uh, you know, again, they haven't guaranteed the jobs. They haven't made the, um, the bailout even contingent on these plants staying open. All we know is that First Energy is going to get a big old check, and, um, and we're going to be left behind, and especially those communities have no guarantees to plan for their future. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, my impression is that uh, climate is an aggravator to other environmental problems. I'm interested in the panel's view of environment aside from climate change, the challenges in the environment. David, you want to go first? Yeah, well, as our climate changes, all kinds of other things change uh, as well. Um, we did a study recently uh, with uh, conservation groups in the region on the trees in Northeast Ohio and what's going to happen to them as our climate gets warmer. And about a third of our native tree species could no longer survive here by the end of this century. Um, if the warming happens, you know, it kind of is a worst case scenario. Um, so massive changes in our local ecosystems could happen. We're getting more diseases coming up from southern latitudes as mosquitoes, you know, different kinds of species of mosquitoes move and uh, diseases like Zika might, are moving northward. It's a public health issue. Air quality is affected as the, as the climate warms. Uh, the algal blooms in Lake Erie. Um, so all kinds of things um, are, happen, and that tr is directly related to our public health um, in the long run. Comprehensive. Anybody else want to weigh in? Okay. Thanks. Hi. I, um, this year, I'm doing what I can individually as a person to uh, mitigate climate change, and I'm going to a, a biotexture academy. And in talking to those folks and asking them, like, once I learn these things about solar and uh, everything else, where am I when I come back to Cleveland? And they're like, well, you probably just want to leave. My, my question is, once you actually learn these things individually, which we all will have to do, the mechanics of alternative energy and it actually eventually being cheaper than conventional energy, how do you mitigate coming back to the city where most of these things are illegal? Let's go to John for that. I mean, the jobs are out there. How does a person make a difference? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question, and I don't want to sow seeds of, like, doubt that we can't do this. I mean, it's like each of us has a role to play, and there's a role at every level, right? There's the individual level. There's policy level. There's how we finance things. Um, so it's, like, really important, and I applaud you for, you know, doing that and doing all that you can because we can do many different things. Uh, but I, I do think that we have to point out that policy is what drives a lot of this work. And one of the reasons that we at the George Gunn Foundation focus on policy is that's how you really get at the systems level change. And when those policies change, that's generally how you get those jobs. That's generally what drives the economy or those policies. And so I don't want to lose track of that as well. There are plenty of individual actions that all of us can do, but we've also got to focus heavily on the policies that help those individual actions become much larger collective actions over mm -hmm. time. 
Heather, did you want to weigh in? Um, I think John's exactly right. So, you know, in politics, uh, the pendulum swings, and it really swings pretty hard. We've seen that with, uh, th with different people in the White House. We've seen that with different policies. You know, there, it swings back and forth. And so the only way that I know I can get up in the morning is knowing that it's going to swing. Right? The market is in our favor. The last page of this book is, uh, is written in many respects. Uh, how fast we get there, how much pain we have to feel before we get there. Uh, I, I feel like that is the, the question, and that'll be kind of the twists and the turns. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it really illustrates, it, and I also want to just say thank you for, for like being so educated. Even the way you phrased your question, I'm like, you go, right? Like, <laughs> I wish people knew, you know, how, like, and really understood all the things that are at risk. But, um, but we have to, we cannot give up. We have to keep demanding the policy changes. We have to keep articulating what we want to our politicians. Yes, there is a lot of money in politics. Yes, there is a lot of corruption. But there is also a lot of leadership uh, that has been displayed in the last few months. Folks like, uh, State Representative Kristen Boggs and State Representative Casey Weinstein and State Representative David Leland and Cedric Denson and O'Brien. Like, there are people who are in the House right now who, uh, who have laid it down and fought for us. And so we have to, to huddle around them and give them the courage of their convictions to keep going because we all have to keep going. And so I think that, that making sure that the policies are happening at the federal, the state, local level, and asking for what we need and asking for, frankly, what we expect is what we have to continue to do. Jocelyn, as Heather pointed out, that was an eloquent question. Thank you for that. You want five million more people that have that level of education across Ohio, but Sierra Club is an educational facility. What can we do to come to you to learn? Are there other places out there where we can all learn to ask questions like that and to know what's going on? Yeah, no, Sierra Club is actually, I just love the organization because we're talking about like 3.5 million members and supporters nationally who, who are volunteers and who are out here doing this work. And, 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 they're, and, and they're very educated and knowledgeable. I mean, I came into this work um, really depending on our volunteers. You know, I came in as an organizer, excited about learning from our volunteers. And, and so that's what I would say, you know, just get involved in some organization. If not the Sierra Club, get involved in some organization because we need you to help us to make a difference and to reach this 100% in Cleveland. And once we get Cleveland, then we're going to go ahead and tackle the state and the world. Those of you here, if you can put your hand up so Sophia can see you, I think right now you have a tweet that came in. At the City Club is the way to tweet us. We do. We have a question from Twitter. What steps has Atlanta taken to move to, sust to sustainable energy? How far along are they in this transition? And how have they involved local businesses and energy producers in this? Reparter. Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a step at that. I mean, a few years ago, they made a commitment to 100% uh, clean energy in Atlanta, but they realized that they didn't really know what that meant. And, and I think that's fair. Like, you know, you can make these commitments, but then how do you actually get there? And so they did the work to figure that out. They figured out what would it actually take? How would we get there? And then most importantly, how do they make sure that their low income residents aren't affected by these decisions in a, in a negative way? And that sort of drove them towards what, what they did. There's a lot of mapping. They figured out where residents were paying the most amount of their income towards electricity. And then they created subsidy programs or used state subsidy programs 
But there's a much more important part of that question, and that is the companies in Atlanta. Because it's incredibly important to know that Coca-Cola and Delta drove that plan. They came to the city and they said, we are your largest corporations in Atlanta. We have shareholders demanding that we be at 100% clean energy, and we can't be headquartered in this city if you don't help us get there. That's a lesson for Cleveland. We can attract companies to this city if we make these commitments and we start to drive on these ideas around clean energy. That's what companies are looking for, it's what shareholders are working for, and even more importantly, it's what employees of those companies are now demanding of them. So there's lots of reasons to do this, but there's a huge opportunity to draw companies to Cleveland if we can come through on these commitments. No, just that I, I know I saw Matt Gray here um, in the audience, and as director of our Office of Sustainability, I'm just really excited about Matt and, uh, and appreciate the work that they have done to make Cleveland the 83rd city to make a commitment to 100% in our, in our National Ready for 100 campaign. Um, I just feel like, you know, we can certainly use Atlanta as a model and that, you know, and that we can make it happen as well. So. You know, again, you know, our client, we have a climate action plan. We've set the groundwork. Now it's up to us to go on and move forward with it. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, hey, good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Welly. I work at Cleveland Owns, which is a local nonprofit that's promoting community solar as a way to make sure not only that we make the transition to a clean energy economy, but that when we do so, we do so in a way that's just and that we do not replicate the same power imbalance that today has allowed First Energy to dictate the terms of the of energy in the future. And I'm curious, my question for the panel is, what role do you see for community ownership and local employment as central to making the transition into the green energy economy for achieving our goals for 100% renewable? Heather? So there, first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I appreciate the leadership that you and so many other Clevelanders are, uh, are displaying on this. So, um, in certain communities right now, they are investing bi in big ways in energy efficiency. And they're doing this really very interestingly. Um, and this, this is important for uh, especially Cleveland to think about. So um, when people are going into uh, abate lead paint, for instance, in certain communities, they're also doing weatherization to those homes. And so that sounds like a very unsexy topic. That's because it totally is. But let me tell you what it does. So they, they weatherize their homes. The indoor air quality improves. When the indoor air quality improves, the asthma rates go down. When the asthma rates go down, the attendance at school and at work goes up. And the other thing that they're doing is they're actually putting the, the training facilities to do the weatherization in those communities. So that it's like a win, 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 win all the way around, right? It's win for education. It's win for healthcare. It's win for our kids. It's win for the local economy. People are able to do amazing things when we like look through the community lens first. And whether that's on making sure that the cost is reasonable or making sure that people have a way to put food on their table or that they feel good so that they can learn and work. These are all things that are in interconnected. And that's why when we're talking about environmental issues, when we're talking about climate change especially, we're not talking about some tree hugger issue. We are talking about life. 
right? This is, this is, we have to do this well. And if we do this well, there, is so, there are so many things in our society that we can begin to address together and we can get this right. And I think that that's what's really exciting. And that's why it's so important that you're doing the kind of work that you're doing. And I think Jonathan also raises the idea that the transition to a clean energy economy also is the transition to a more democratic economy. Um, and it's really important that we focus on that and make sure that we're taking back local control, we're uh, pulling wealth back into our communities, um, and that uh, we're, we're establishing financing like green banks and other lo local institutions um, that can help us grow in the future. John, John, uh, John Mitterholzer, Jonathan pointed out in the beginning that he's a nonprofit. Do groups come in to the Gun Foundation and say, help us out? Do you give them a harder look because they are doing things that do improve our climate, that do assist us? Yeah, absolutely. That's the best part of my job. I, I get to meet a whole bunch of great people like Jonathan trying to change the world and trying to, trying to do this quickly because we know we have to do it quickly. But that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting job in philanthropy, but I work for a great family who wants to... Uh, combat climate change. And so my job is to help introduce them to the great people and organizations on the ground here in Cleveland and to recommend that we fund those organizations to do the work. Um, so it's, it's there, and we're lucky in Cleveland. We have a lot of philanthropy in this town and we have a lot of philanthropy that's supporting environmental work. And so we happen to live in a town that has a lot of uh, wealth going towards these kinds of projects and ideas. Good possibilities. Next question, please. Hi, uh, so when I look at some states that are ahead of Ohio in terms of their renewable energy commitments, like California, New York, Texas. A lot of them have their own power grids, and that's not the case here in Ohio. So I'm wondering how you see the city of Cleveland and the state of Ohio navigating the challenge of renewable energy where um, market forces might be encouraging business decisions that would work against us. Heather's thinking. Well, I mean, I think it's important to look at, like, they may have their own, I mean, California has its own independent power market, but I think it's, it's you know, I'm a broken record here. It's policy that drove California to where it is. It's policy in Texas. It's wind energy policy that drove Texas to be the largest supplier of wind. So I think it's important. It, it isn't just that those things happened overnight. It isn't that it's sunnier in California. It's that there were deliberate decisions made by individuals demanding from their policymakers that those policies be put in place. And so you see those changes in California, you see them in Texas, you see them in Iowa. I mean, Iowa gets more than 35% of its energy from wind. Iowa's not a deep blue state, but it had policies that they believed they wanted to pursue to help farmers in Iowa, and that's what you saw. You saw energy transition. So I'm a big believer that most of this is driven by policy. Okay, you're good. <laughs> Next, please. Uh, thank you. Um, I would like the panel to address the issue of green spaces in cities and communities, the importance of green spaces, and the either progress or lack of progress that our communities are making around the state in this issue. Jocelyn, how do green spaces play in? You know, um, we do, um, in the Sierra Club, we've been doing dialogues, really listening to the community. And one of the first questions that we ask is, you know, what's your background? You know, wh why, why do you kind of feel or think the way you do at this time? And, and a lot of it is based on, you know, growing up and, and what you experience and what you're exposed to. And if you grew up in a, 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 an environment where there was no green space, there was 
no parks or mountains or waters. It really makes a difference and it really affects your life. Um, it's very important that we have, um, you know, it, it, that we have that kind of space in our community. You know, just, you know, for many reasons, not just, um, just mentally, you know, for our mental health, but, but for our, you know, just even for our physical health. So, um, you know, I know David can speak to the technical aspect of it, but I just think it's just so important. Um, I just wanted to add that uh, one climate change related program going on at the city is a major reforestation uh, program. The city has lost more than half of its tree canopy in, in recent years, and that's a serious problem. Um, so by restoring that tree canopy, um, you're creating more shade, you're helping to cool the city. That's a resilience uh, kind of program for the city. Um, and you're also improving public health and the, the beauty of the city, uh, the mental health of, of city residents. Um, so there's all kinds of, of co-benefits whenever you plant a tree. Answer your question? Good, thank you. Sophia. Hi, my name is Olivia. Uh, Jocelyn, you mentioned that um, people's awareness of the environment has a lot to do with the environment in which they grow up. Is the Sierra Club or any of the other organizations doing anything, uh, doing outreach to Cleveland area public schools? Yeah, we, we actually just, we're just pretty much everywhere because we have such great volunteers. You know, um, we're doing a lot of education in the schools. We're working with students. Um, we have uh, interns, you know, from our, uh, from our local universities, colleges and universities. But we definitely, um, I go into the schools myself and do um, education around clean energy. Our water, we have a, a water team member um, and our volunteers. So we do, um, across the board, a lot of work in our schools. And I'll tell you one thing, the young people get it. The students really get it, um, which is wonderful. Now we got to get the adults to kind of come along with that and, and get on the same page. At your, at your tables, if you're here or online, if you're listening that way, uh, there are Twitter handles for all of us if you have questions later of that nature. If you want to join the Sierra Club, for instance, go ahead. Sophia. We have a question from Twitter, speaking of. What is the relationship between gerrymandering and HB6? <laughs> That's yours. <laughs> uh, well, so I, I actually think that it has everything to do with not just this piece of legislation, but all the pieces of legislation that are happening right now. You know, the reality is that uh, members, whether they're in Congress or in the State House, don't have to listen to you. They, are, they literally pick you. We had, there's these, um, these computer programs, they're packing and cracking computer programs is what they're called. And they essentially take how you voted in the last primary, they assume that that's your political party, and they basically create automatically these maps so that they, these people don't have to, to pretty much listen to you at all. All they do have to do is listen to their donors. And, um, and that is a major, major issue in Ohio. You have to look no further than places like Cleveland where you have like well, I, I think the best example probably is what people call the snake on the lake. This is Marcy Captor's district that kind of basically just goes all the way along the lake shore. Um, in some places, it's, it's literally a bridge that connects one part to another part of her district. Um, and, that, and that is done to make sure that they don't have to ever listen to you. And it basically secures power of one party over another. Uh, depending when the census uh, started, or when the when the maps are drawn and when the and what the census says, and so we we're coming up on another census. 
Um, and so the first thing that you can do as individuals is make sure that you get registered uh, with the census and then make sure your friends do that too. There's gonna be some massive volunteer drives that are happening all over the state of Ohio to make sure that every single vote is counted. There is a substantial undercounting in Cuyahoga and so a place like this is especially important to get to every community to make sure every person is part of the census. And then we can draw more accurate maps. Now we did pass a constitutional amendment a couple of years ago here to make sure that our maps are drawn a little more fairly. But it's not a perfect process. And so when that map uh, process starts, it's also important that you weigh in. There's a public process by which you can actually even suggest a map that hopefully will empower your community's voice. And they constitutionally have to respond to you. And so it'll be really, really vital that the next couple of years in the state of Ohio that we show up, that we demand that our politicians are listening, that we make sure that we get counted so that in the future they have to listen to us. That will be very, very fundamental. They can't think for one second that, um, that our eye is not on the ball. And it's worth noting too that the gerrymandering fight for state legislatures and for the federal are two different fights, so pay attention there. John, are you gonna speak? Well, I was just gonna say, I think gerrymandering is a great example of we Ohioans rising up, saying enough already, and actually voting change. So for those of you who question sometimes, do our votes matter? Absolutely. We did something significant, and we made that change, and this next census is critical because all of those changes will come as a result of those census numbers. So I, I just think it's a great example of us as Ohioans demanding change and getting that change. Next question, please. All right, you were talking about um, clean energy in Iowa, and you're always remarking on the importance of policy to make these changes. And I want to ask how, how would you suggest bringing climate awareness across the political barrier? Um, I don't think it's actually so much across the political barrier when it comes to the public, especially as younger people are starting to age up. I, you really don't see a huge difference between young Republican voters and young Democratic voters. Where the disconnect is, is the folks, and Jocelyn alluded to this earlier, the, the folks who are grown and in elected office now and everybody else. Like the, the political divide, you're especially as you're seeing more wildfires, more drought, more torrential rain, more extreme storms. You know, things are happening with crazy regularity. And so now that we're seeing it with our own eyes, you're just not seeing the same kind of political division. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? And then you do have some different theories of change on that for sure. But I do think that um, getting involved with our elected officials and getting involved with the political process is one of the most important things we can do because the real divide is the folks who are elected and who are beholden to their campaign donors and the rest of us that are just trying to survive and put food on our tables. And the, the political divide on climate change may not be as big as, as we think. If you look at national polling, um, even Republicans um, agree but the big majority of Republicans agree that climate change is happening, it's real, they're concerned about it, and they believe in renewable energy. Um, so um, I think the problem, again, is that the money in politics is, it makes it a, a situation where our political system does not respond to the preferences of most Americans. Thank you. A Twitter question? Um, 
like to hear some of the final thoughts from the panelists, if that's um, okay with you. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's start, we'll start with Jocelyn. We'll start on this end this time. Just final thoughts, something you'd like the audience to take home with them. Homework, as it were. Yeah, I just wanted to maybe make a comment about the census question. We also need to make sure that there are people going throughout the communities who look like folk in those communities. We need to make sure that we're helping people understand their jobs out here for people. Let's pass the word on that. David? One of the things that, that gives me a lot of hope these days is how young people are getting involved in, in the climate movement. Um, there's the Sunrise Movement, um, a national organization of, of young people here in the United States. Uh, they're helping to lead the campaign for a Green New Deal. Um, and I think young people are starting to realize that this is their future and they have to stand up and fight for it. Uh, I'd say don't give up. We have a long road ahead of us, but it's a very important road uh, probably the most important road that we'll ever travel. And the only way we get there is if we get there together and we're really thoughtful and we include people that have not been included in the past and, uh, and we are forward facing. But I'm very confident that we can do it, but it's gonna take every one of us. I too am absolutely confident we can do it and I would remind everybody that the League of Women Voters is here today to register to vote. So if you have, are not registered to vote, Register to vote, and if you are a registered voter, vote. Thank you. Thank you, panel. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying the final forum in our For the Love of Cleveland series, a conversation on Cleveland's quest to reach 100% renewable electricity. The presenting sponsor of today's forum is the Northeast Ohio Sewer District. Our supporting sponsor is PNC Bank. Additional support for the series provided by the Good Community Foundation and RPM Inc. We appreciate your generous support for For the Love of Cleveland series. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Beach. Mr. Mitterholzer, Ms. Taylor Meisel, and Ms. Travis, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Rick Jackson. This forum is now adjourned.